have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 this morning. We're going to continue in our journey through the gospel of Mark. Uh, we are going to uh, conclude on Resurrection Sunday in a couple weeks. Uh, so we're going to take some large chunks between now, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and and Resurrection Sunday in a couple weeks, we'll take scripture in some large chunks and not hit every single um, uh, pericope or paragraph uh, section, um, but, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll hit a, the big ideas between now and Resurrection Sunday. Mark chapter 12, we'll be picking up in a moment in verse 35. Um, a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago now, I guess. I guess it's about 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, Wendy and I bought our first home and our first house. Uh, we moved into the house, and uh, at that time, some of you that may have maybe remember moving in or moved into your first home, sometimes you do everything you can to stretch to get in there, and, and some things you can do, and then some things you know are going to have to wait until another time. And and I remember when we moved in, there was this old uh, range or stove that was in the kitchen. And I, it was probably there since whenever the house was built, I guess. Uh, it was a little dated looking, but, you know, you turn the switch and the burner came on. And you turn the other switch and the oven came on. And, and so it worked. And so even though it was dated looking, it didn't have all the fancy things, didn't self-clean or anything like that. You know, it wasn't something we had to worry about right then, and we had other things to spend money on. But, you know, as years go by, you're like, well, you know, at some point you might like to replace this range, but the thing kept working. And, you know, so maybe you're like me. I just had a hard time. You're like, it still works. You know, I know it doesn't look nice. I know it's not. I know it doesn't have all the stuff, but it still works. So, you know, you just, now you just start praying the thing breaks, right? So you can justify it. I think it did break once, and I was unfortunately able to fix it for, like, some cheap part for, like, 15 bucks, and the thing kept going. Uh, but then one day it finally broke. And I don't know if the temperature wasn't holding in the oven or it wouldn't even come on altogether. I don't know, but we were just glad that it finally broke. And so we went down to the appliance store and figured it out, you know, did all the consumer reports and, and all that stuff that some of you do too. And if you're like me, there's never enough data and never enough information. Uh, and finally, you make a decision and you choose one and it got delivered and installed and put in. And it was uh, as far different from the other one we had as possibly could be in, in the exception that it was still a range. I mean, it had this digital dashboard. You, our last one had an analog clock, okay? So this had this entire digital touchscreen thing that was on there. And, uh, you know, you could still turn a knob and the burner would come on. But then it had all these other buttons on it. Uh, buttons that said things like proof. I still don't know what that button does. I was hoping it would help my son with geometry, but I don't think it does that. There's, there's a button for convection roast and then convection bake. I have never used those buttons. I don't know what those do. There's a self-clean, there's a warm, all these tons of things. And pretty much we use it to boil water and bake stuff in the oven, even though it does all these things. Uh, but the truth is, in fact, most of the appliances in my house probably at this point, maybe in yours, do more than I will ever possibly use them to do. 
There are buttons on my washing machine that have never gotten pushed that I don't know what they do. There are buttons on the dishwasher that have never gotten pushed. Every appliance in my house does more than I ever am going to use it for. In fact, that's probably true of most of the things we have. I know it's true uh, of this thing I'm holding in my hand. Some of you have a phone or a smartphone. Um, There's a commercial, an iPhone commercial that I'll play while I'm talking here that kind of highlights the idea of all the different things that phones can do. This is even an older commercial, so... Uh, some of you may be doing more things than this, but the, all the different things that, that our phones can do. I mean, you can use it as a baby monitor. Or I don't, this one's using it to, that's to help teach your kids how to brush your teeth. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what's going on there, but interactive stuff and uh, maps. You know, I use it for that one. You probably do too. And there's, uh, but GPS to find your dog. You know, I don't know. You know, your phone could do that. Uh, Flashcards with your kids. I don't know what these people are doing with the bugs. But here's here's the bottom line. This thing, I pretty much use it to um, look at emails, uh, text. Once in a while, I talk on it. Check Facebook once in a while. Play seven words and red herring. And that's pretty much what, I, you know, maps. I guess I use it as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a Google, as a GPS too. But not much more than that. This thing does much more than I will ever use it for. I will probably never use it for some of those things that you see in the commercial and all that. But it's true of much of the things in our life. That you have lots of things in your possession that do more than you utilize. You have lots of things in your life that have more capability than you actually utilize them for. And when we come to our passage this morning, the question that I have is, is it possible that when we come to Jesus that the same can be true? Is it possible that like the smartphone, we come to Jesus sometimes and we just want it to do what we want it to do at the moment? You know, I just, I just need to talk on the phone and make a phone call. That's all I need. And then I can put it down. I just need to answer an email or send a text and that's all I need. And I get what I need out of it and I leave it aside for the things I really don't need or want at the moment. And the question I have this morning is, is it possible that sometimes even Christians come to Jesus in the same way? That we come to Jesus for certain things that we want for him, from him, certain things he can do, certain things we've read in the scripture that he does, but we never actually embrace the full capacity and fullness of who Jesus is. Is it possible that sometimes we go to Jesus for what we want from him and fail to really sit and ask what he wants from us? As we come to this morning's passage in Mark chapter 12, I think Jesus is dealing with a situation very much like this, that he's talking with some uh, people, uh, religious leaders especially, but a large group of people. And he is, this is following up on the heels of Pastor Brian's passage last week where a number of people have asked Jesus questions and Pastor Brian pointed out 
that you know how you ask the question is so important because these people were coming and asking questions to try and trip Jesus up and, and all these things. And now, after Jesus has been asked three questions, he decides he's going to ask a question. And he's going to ask a question of them. And the question that he asks involves this very aspect of who he is. And the question that he asks really gets at this fact of who Jesus is and who they expect him to be. And I'd like us just to consider for a few moments this morning who Jesus is. What is our expectations of him? Could it be that we come to Jesus with certain expectations and we miss the fullness of who he is. I'm just going to read 1235 to 37, just this first part this morning. Um, I'm not going to read the second two pericopes there. I've preached sermons on those before, uh, the widow's offering and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. This morning we're going to look at this passage in 1235 to 37. It may seem like a little bit of a confusing passage at first, but we'll unpack it together in a few moments. Here's what it says. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ... Let me pause there for a second. The Christ... And and let me just explain that for a second. And I say that Christ is not... And I say this in all seriousness, not a joke... Christ is not Jesus' last name. And, and, and it can be easy to make that mistake because often we say Jesus Christ and it sounds like a surname, it sounds like a last name. Uh, and, and, and people I think that may be new to church or new to Christianity assume that that's the case. Um, but Christ is, is not the last name of Jesus, it's a title. Um, it would be probably more correct to say Jesus the Christ. Uh, it, it's more of a title uh, and not a name. And Christ... Uh, translation loosely would be Messiah or Messiah, Savior. Uh, it's a title. It's something the Jewish people were waiting for. They were waiting for Christ. They were waiting for their Messiah. They were waiting for a Savior. And so that's what Jesus is talking about when he says this. So let's get back. How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. This passage is at first, probably a little bit confusing, saying, what's going on here? Jesus asked him a question. He could ask him anything, and he asked this kind of cryptic question about David. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And so Jesus is talking about the Messiah, and here's what he's confronting. He's confronting this belief in the Jewish people of his day that the Messiah would be the son of David and nothing more than that. No more, no less. A human Messiah, a human Savior, a human King. And so he's challenging that belief right off the bat. And so he asks this question. Everyone would have agreed, this, this quote comes from Psalm 110, and everyone would have agreed that that statement, the Lord said to my word, this is David writing it, and the Lord is Yahweh the God, the the, the ones that the Jewish would say, yeah, that's God. 
said to my Lord. And then everyone believed that second my Lord was the Messiah. So Jesus said, wait a second, if that's just the son of David, why would he call him Lord? And you might say, well, what do you mean? Well, think about it this way. Think if you're an ancestor of yours, say a grandparent. And uh, for, for me, uh, my grandfather's name was Amerigo Piccarello. Amerigo was, was a great man in my eyes. He was a, he was, he was a doctor. He was a uh, soldier. He was a field medic in World War II, won a bronze star. He was, he was great. Um, and, and so think him, he would never, I don't care if I became a doctor or if I went to war and got a, 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 a medal that was superior to his or achieved a rank higher than his, I can never picture my grandfather, Amerigo Piccarello, coming to me and calling me Lord. It's silly, right? I mean, could you ever picture your grandfather, your great-grandfather, coming to you and saying, my Lord? I mean, it wouldn't happen. It's, it's foolish because you come later than them and you're not superior to them. And so you, it wouldn't happen. And Jesus said, how can this be that David would call someone who comes later than him and is not superior to him, because remember, they would say he would be equal to David, he would be a king, a human king. How would David call him Lord? It's foolish. It doesn't make any sense. So there must be something else going on in this passage. There must be something else that's going on with the Messiah. And here it is. They were prepared for the Messiah, or excuse me, the Christ to be the son of David, here's what they weren't prepared for. They weren't prepared for the Messiah to be the son of God. They thought that he would be the son of David. They were not prepared for him to be also the son of God. And Jesus is trying to expand their understanding and their fullness of him. That yes, the Savior is coming to save you on earth and in this world, and he's going to take some changes here, but he's also going to be the son of God, and you have to have a greater and fuller understanding of this. He would be the son of David, that Jesus would through Mary and her husband Joseph, but he would also be the son of God. Son of God is a familiar term to us. It would be strange to those in Jesus' day. In fact, if I were to transport you in a time capsule back to first century Rome and you were to wander around anywhere in the Roman Empire, not just Jerusalem, but anywhere in the Roman Empire, and you asked the question, who is the Son of God? They would have a very definite and quick answer for you. They wouldn't miss a beat. They would know exactly the question you're asking, and they would know exactly the answer to the question. You would say, who is the Son of God? And they would say, Octavian. That would be their answer, Octavian. Octavian was the emperor of Rome, and when he took over and became the emperor of Rome, he made sure that his stepfather, Julius Caesar, was proclaimed as divine. And so if his stepfather, Julius Caesar, was divine, that means Octavian was the son of God. And so this was the only terminology they really knew when it came to son of God. And so the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, they have a very clear understanding of their desire to remove the oppression and to be delivered by a human king. 
but they didn't have an understanding of how this person would also be the son of God. For us to fully appreciate what's going on here, I need to give you a quick and brief history lesson. And I want to ask you to hang with me for a minute, especially if you're not a history buff and you've already rolled your eyes at me. I need you to just hang with me for a minute because you need to appreciate the tension and the situation that Jesus is walking into and why it is so important and so big that they are looking for a human deliverer and Jesus is challenging that. You need to understand the last, I'm going to do this quick, 600 years of history before Jesus. If you could put that, so the, the, the people of God were waiting for deliverance. The last time, the last time before Jesus that God's people had reigned with a king and, and they'd had their own nation and their own temple and they'd been in control and they, had, they could call the shots and there wasn't anyone else over them. The last time before Jesus' time was five, five, prior to 597 B.C. Over 600 years before Jesus. What we know as the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian period, that was the last time that they were able to call the shots. So imagine that. Some of you come from nations that may have been colonized or may have been taken over by another nation. Maybe you come from a place. So you understand maybe what it feels like to live under a regime that is not your own. Someone else is calling the shots. And that was the case for the Israelites, 597. So from 597 to 539, there ruled the Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar II, the fall, and all of that. After that, 538 to 320 B.C. So see, we're covering large chunks of time. 538 to 320 B.C. was the Persian-Greek period. You remember a guy from your history class named Alexander, right? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great in 332 conquered the Palestine, that area of the world. And uh, the Greek-Persian uh, uh, Greek area, they were over that. During this time, between 538 and 320, just to give you a biblical uh, aspect of where it's at, Ezra and Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem about 450, 440. Uh, they're in this time period, but they never really reign over the land and have it uh, are out of the control of the Greeks and the Persians. 323, Alexander the Great dies, and then in 320 to 200 BC, we'll call that the Egyptian period, um, 320 to 200 BC is the Egyptian period. And Egypt is over, uh, Egypt is over Palestine uh, for that time. And then 200 to 63 B.C. is the Syrian period. The Syrian period is significant for this reason, because when Syria took over Jerusalem, a man named Antiochus IV was enthroned. And when Antiochus took over Jerusalem, he also created a priesthood, and he desecrated the temple of God. You may know the story. He took the Jewish temple and set it up as an altar to Zeus. He desecrated the temple, and this was so offensive to the Jewish people that in 166, a man named Judas Maccabeus and uh, some of his family members and some people revolted, and they revolted, and they took back the temple, and they cleansed the temple. He was also known as Judah the Hammer, and he led a revolutionary group to cleanse the temple. It is a time that is remembered by Jewish people today. Does anyone know when? 
Hanukkah, right. Hanukkah, every Hanukkah, they remember Judas uh, Maccabeus or Judah the Hammer cleansing the temple uh, and purifying the temple of that defilement. But they were still under Syrian control until 63 B.C. 63 B.C. begins the Roman period. Pompey, Roman general, takes Jerusalem in 63 B.C., death of Julius Caesar in 44, and in 37 B.C., Herod is established as the king of Judea. Octavian, or Augustus, won a civil war in 31 B.C. and um, changed from a republic to an empire. And that is the world that Jesus is born into somewhere probably around 4 B.C., Uh, somewhere between 4 and 0. Those that created our calendars got it probably almost right with the birth of Jesus. He was probably born somewhere between 0 and 4 B.C. in that area. Um, And so Jesus is born into this world. And so when he's talking to the Jewish people about a Messiah and a Savior, here's what they have in mind. It has been over 600 years since we got to call the shots. And in their scriptures, there is the promise that one day a deliverer is going to come. And that one day someone is going to set them free. Imagine this. We have such short memories these days. Imagine keeping that dream alive for 600 years. Year after year after year after year. We forget things that are much less important much more quickly than they do. So how do they keep it alive? How do they pass it from one generation to another? One of the biggest ways they did it was something called the Passover feast. Every year they would celebrate Passover. And the Passover every year remembered that God had faced the enemy of the Jewish people, Pharaoh, and the nation of Egypt, that God had released them with a deliverer, Moses, that God had given them his presence in the tabernacle, and God had brought them into a new land. And they remembered that year after year. And every time they remembered that, here was their prayer. When's the next Moses coming? When are you going to fight our enemy? Whether it's the Syrians, the Egyptians, Alexander, the Caesars, whoever it is, God, who is going to rise up and fight our enemies? At one point, they thought it was uh, Judah the Hammer. They thought it was the Maccabeans. They thought, this is it. This is our Savior. This is the Messiah. But they didn't turn out to do everything they expected, and it fizzled out, and, and so that wasn't it. But this is what Jesus walks into. So when someone in first century Israel calls Jesus the Christ, this is what they are saying. He is the one that after 600 years of history is going to throw all of this off, deliver us from the chains of the Romans and the oppressors, cleanse the temple, set up a kingdom, and reign like David reigned. And that's what they have in mind. That's what their hope is. When their palms on Palm Sunday, they're putting them down. That's what their hope is. That a military leader is coming to save and to reign over us. And so Jesus walks into that. And so there is an incredible amount of tension around Jesus, especially when people are calling him the Christ. And so they wanted to go back to the days of David. David. 
David. They wanted a king like David was for them. They wanted a king like David, but what they didn't realize is that like Plato's cave analogy, David was a shadow of what was real. David wasn't the ideal that they were looking back to. David was a shadow of what was to come. David was a foreshadowing of what would be to come. So David says, the Lord said to my Lord, because something greater is coming, someone greater than David is coming. And that's what Jesus is trying to expand them to understand. His kingdom would be one of complete victory, not just of the outside, but would conquer the inside part of humanity that had gone wrong from the beginning. He was going to turn back the curse, but it was going to start with a real spiritual problem that existed. Jesus came to defeat a great enemy, and they knew that. It just wasn't Caesar. It wasn't Caesar, and it wasn't Herod. See, when Jesus in his ministry confronts an enemy, it's always Satan. The enemy that Jesus came to defeat wasn't Caesar, it wasn't Herod, it wasn't those that were oppressing him, it was Satan. And so Pharaoh is not akin to Caesar, Pharaoh was akin to Satan. Jesus came as the Messiah to defeat Satan. He came not to cleanse the, table, the temple of pagan worship, but to cleanse it from hypocrisy and extortion and to redefine the temple as the people of God. He came not to see that the presence of God would be in one particular room at one time called the Holy of Holies and dwelling over a box. He came to see that the Spirit and the presence of God dwelled with men and women throughout the earth as the Holy Spirit is given to people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, all throughout this 600 years, what we also forget is there was no presence of God in the temple. When the Babylonian captivity took place, Ezekiel in chapter 10 and 11, we won't turn there, says he was a witness to the glory of God leaving the temple. It never returned. But the promise was that one day God would return to the temple. The promise was that one day God would return to to the temple, but he didn't. He didn't. His presence didn't return with Herod. His presence didn't return with the rebuilding of the temple. His presence didn't return until Jesus himself walks into the temple. And then the presence of God has come back to the temple, but they didn't know it. They thought it was just the son of David. They thought it was just Joseph and Mary's son. They thought it was just the son of a carpenter. And so Jesus challenges their understanding. How can he be just the son of David? He needs to be more than the son of David. He needs to be not just the son of David, the son of God. The Jewish people in the first century who were waiting for a Messiah had to learn that Jesus was a Messiah who was both son of David and son of God. But I think it's also true for us today and our expectations of Jesus. I think there are times that we come to Jesus and maybe we're looking for him as a human king, a son of David, someone who can touch and affect and fix the problems here and now on this earth, in this world. Or maybe we come to him as just the son of God, someone who touches and affects things after this life and after this world, but doesn't affect much going on right here and right now. Sometimes we look at Jesus as one or the other. But the truth is, he is both son of David 
and Son of God. The hope is that Jesus is the Savior of both your life now and here and your life then and there. The challenge is that Jesus is Savior and King of your life here and now and then and there. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Jesus, which has helped me immensely in informing me on what's going on in the Jewish world and what's happening in Jesus' life during this time. I know it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but let me read it for you. N.T. Wright says this, Perhaps this time, not the Jewish people of the first century, but the would-be Christian people of the Western world have not been ready to recognize Jesus himself. We want a religious leader, not a king. We want someone to save our souls, not rule our world. Or, if we want a king, someone to take charge of the world, what we want is someone to implement the policies we embrace, just as Jesus' contemporaries did. But if Christians didn't get, don't get Jesus right, what chance is there that other people will bother much with him? Sometimes we have this dichotomy in mind. There's no dichotomy with Jesus. It exists with us that sometimes we just want a religious leader. Someone, maybe you're here and at times you've just wanted, I just want someone to save my soul. I just want to know that after this life that I have heaven secured, that I will, you know, be there with God and that's what I want. That's primarily what I want from God. Or maybe you come and you say, I just want someone who's going to fix what's going on in my life right now. I just want someone who will fix my financial situation, my relational situation, whatever it might be. I just want someone to fix what's going on right now in my life. But the thing is, Jesus is both Son of God and Son of David. If you're looking for just a human solution to your human problem, then someone other than Jesus will suffice. If you're looking for someone just to deal with your spiritual problem but not affect life here and now, then don't bother with Jesus because he didn't come for that purpose. He came to be king and savior here and now and then and there. So how do we hold these both in our lives? How do we hold both Jesus as son of God and as son of David in your life, I think we can draw at least three things from this passage. I'm going to give them to you quickly. One, first, know who your real enemy is. Know who your real enemy is. The Jewish people thought our real enemy is Caesar. Jesus said, no, it isn't. Our real enemy is the people who are oppressing us. No, it isn't. Your real enemy is the enemy of your soul. Your real enemy is the one who can destroy your soul for eternity in hell. Know who your real enemy is. Your enemy is not the sickness. It is the despair that sickness can plunge you into and that the enemy will use in your life. Your enemy is not your boss. It is the bitterness that can grow in your heart against a person who mistreats you. Your enemy is not the person of another religion. It is the spiritual forces and principalities that deceive men and women. Your enemy is not your job. It is the discouragement that can capture your heart in that position. Your enemy is not your spouse. 
It is the unforgiveness that settles in your heart and can grip you in your marriage. The real enemy is Satan, not this world. Paul said it best. You wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's the real enemy. Jesus knew the real enemy and the reason he came and he had to be not just son of David because if he sat on David's throne and had a kingdom and had a temple, the real problem would still exist. And it would for you too. If you had that money that you think you need right now, if you had that relationship that you think you need right now, if you had that question answer that you need, it would solve some things, but it would not solve the main thing. Jesus came, he says, I got to be son. The Messiah needs to be son of David and son of God. And it's true in your life too. The second thing is this, know that the kingdom is started and yet still coming. See, that was the mistake that they made in Jesus' day too. They thought, well, if you're the Messiah, why do we still have all these problems in the world? And sometimes we do today. If Jesus has come, why isn't everything fixed? Because Jesus came and started and declared and planted a flag, but the war is not over. Any nation that goes to war declares war, but there is a period of time between the declaration of war and the victory. There is a period of time that you might look around and say, it doesn't look like we're winning. And yet the war goes on and God is moving ahead and God is moving forward and the kingdom of God that was begun in Jesus Christ in the hearts of men and women in the church of Jesus Christ has been expanding and expanding ever since and God is on the move and God is at work bringing his plan to completion. And so understand that it has begun but it has not been completed. That Jesus came the first time to begin the kingdom of God in this world. He will come another time to bring it to completion. And we look forward to that second coming of Jesus when it will come to completion. The third thing is this. Let Jesus define Jesus. Let Jesus define Jesus. Go to the scriptures not looking to shape Jesus into your own image, but looking to be shaped into the image of Christ. Don't let a day go by without reading some of the red words in your Bible. Look at the words of Jesus and what he taught and who he is and let that shape who you are and who you will become. Too often we let our expectations define who Jesus is going to be in our life or we let our current needs define who Jesus is going to be in our life. The question is, will we let Jesus define who Jesus is going to be? Will we look at his word and his life and allow that to change us? Will you be willing to be shaped into his image or continue to try to shape him into yours? You say, where do I start? I, I mean, I'll give you a quick place to start. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount every day for a month, there's no system or no 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 particular way. I'm just, just a challenge. What if you read Matthews 5 through 7 every day for a month and got that the words of Jesus into your life? Or what if you started to memorize those words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 through 7? There's some challenging words in there of who Jesus is and who his followers are supposed to be. Let Jesus define Jesus. See, the problem in the world that Jesus walked into is they were so intent on defining the Messiah. Jesus walked in. He just had one question. It was a simple one. If he's the son of David, why does David call him Lord? And they had no answer. 
because they were so stuck in their mentality of this is what the Messiah is going to be like that they did not have room to understand that God had a different plan. So what kind of Savior are you looking for? Son of David? Son of God? Or will you let Jesus be both? Are you looking for a Savior that will triumph over the people or things that make life difficult for you? Are you looking for a political Savior? Someone who will show the other side of the aisle who's boss? Are you looking for a medical Savior? Someone who will keep you from harm and fix what ails you and relieve your pain? Are you looking for a financial Savior? Someone who will provide not only for everything you need, but many of the things you want not only the need-to-haves, but the nice-to-haves? Are you looking for a relational Savior, someone better than Match.com, who will find you the perfect mate and ensure you against breakup and pain? Someone who can fix the relationship messes that have occurred in your past and are impacting your presence? Let me tell you, I think what we get from this passage is Jesus is not less than these Saviors. He is more. Come to Jesus as the Savior of your soul and your life and find that he is not less, but he is much more. He is a Savior that transcends politics. He is bigger than laws, policies, nations, and treaties. His church can grow in communist China. It survives under totalitarian regimes around the world through war and famine. His kingdom and his church can grow in, even in capitalistic Western culture. He is the Savior that's able to heal whatever ails your body. He changed the leper's spots, makes the blind to see, makes the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, erases cancer, even resurrects the dead, but he is more. Jesus conquers disease and even death. He has transformed death from a coffin to a doorway to life. When the fragility of this life and these bodies seem to be taking over, Jesus, there is a new body available to us that is not of this world. He is the Savior who is able to pay the electric bill, give you a job to take care of your needs, bless you so that you can be a blessing to others, but he's more. He's the Savior who provides you not just with a position for provision, but a position for purpose. He's able to lead you to a mate or give you relationship healing in your life, but he is more. He is able to fill the relational void that you feel within yourself, and he's able to lead you into fulfilling life-giving relationships. He's able to bring healing and forgiveness for the guilt and shame that you carry from past relationships when you tried to fill the void yourself or with others. He's more. Jesus is no less than the son of David. He's more. And that's what he was trying to get across with this question. That yes, he's the son of David. He, there are things in this earth and on this world that will change because Jesus came. And eventually when he comes again in that second coming, everything changes. Game over, new heaven, new earth, hit reset, God recreates. But there are things that started to change when he came the first time. But it's not just that. It's more. He came to redeem the lives 
of the lost. He came to save men and women from an eternity in hell. He came to restore the relationship with the heavenly father that was broken through sin and the curse. There's more. And Jesus is saying, when you come and you're just looking for what he can do on this earth, you're missing all of what he wants to do in your life. And when you come and you're just looking for an insurance policy against the fires of hell, you're missing all that he wants to do here on this earth. He's both son of David and son of God. And so this morning as we close, I just ask you this question, which side do you need reaffirmed in your life this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to be reminded that Jesus is the son of David, that his life changes life on this earth. Maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus does care about your sickness, that Jesus does care about that bill you're worried about getting paid, that Jesus does care about your relationships, that Jesus does care about your life here and now. He's not just a God who's out there for the then and there. He's a God that cares about your life here and now. He's the God that heard the blind man say, have mercy on me, and he healed them. He's a God that that made the deaf hear and the mute speak, that cast out demons. He cares about your life here and now. It doesn't mean there won't be struggles. It doesn't mean there won't be difficulty, but it means he'll walk with you through it and in it. Maybe you need to be reminded that he's the son of David, that he's the son of man, that he walked on this earth, that he understands your trials, and that he loves you through them. Or maybe you need to be reminded this morning that Jesus is the son of God. Maybe you've come to him and you've looked for the bread of his hand or the healing that he can offer, but you have never come and put your eternity in his hands. You have never come to him and trusted him with your soul and with your life. And maybe you need to remind he's both. He's the son of man and the son of God. And when you come to him and you put your trust in him, it changes not just life on this earth. It changes life forever. There's no reason to fear death and the grave anymore because when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, it's just a doorway. It's a doorway to his presence and eternity with him. And so maybe this morning you need to be challenged to remember that Jesus is also the son of God. And if he's the savior, son of David, and he's the savior, son of God, he's also the king. And so I challenge you this morning to enthrone him on your life if you've never done that before. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, this dichotomy or this division that I talk about this morning, it exists in our minds and in our hearts. It does not exist in you. I recognize that. Jesus, you are never either the son of David or the son of God. You are both always, all the time. And for us to embrace you and for us to follow you, we need to understand that. And so, Lord, I pray that for us as a church, as men and women, that you would help us to understand that you care about the here and now and you care about the then and there. And we are to embrace you as the God of both. 
that we embrace you as we trust that you are at work in this earth, even when it looks like we may be losing the battle around us, that you are at work and we know the end of the story. That you would help us to put our trust in you through the difficulties that we see around us. That you would also remind us that you have conquered the grave, that the resurrection and the empty tomb that we will celebrate in a special way in a couple weeks reminds us that even our greatest enemy, Satan and the grave, has been conquered through Jesus Christ, that you are Son of God. And so, Lord, I pray for men and women in this room that you would, God, help us to stop making you in our image casting our expectations on you. And Lord, just allow us to be formed and shaped into the image of Jesus. That as we leave here today, we leave more like Jesus. That as we leave here today, we leave depending on you for the things that we need on this earth and in hope and faith of the things that are yet to come in heaven because you are son of David and son of God. That we will never give up hope because you are the God who inhabits the heavens and we will never walk in despair because you are the God who walked this earth and cares about our life here. Lord, we love you. Lord, let us know and remind us that Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, is enough for us today in anything that we need. And it's in his name that we come and we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this and proclaim this declaration this morning in response to God and his word?